0: Hi, welcome everyone. Um, I'm Shailene. I work in the fiction department here, and I'm really pleased to welcome everyone to Poetry and Conversation this evening. Um, thank you for coming out, um, especially on a very rainy night. But we're so thrilled tonight to have Anne Brecken and Barbara Marson with us. Um, they're going to read... Um, They're going to read, uh, kind of together, I guess, and then facilitate a discussion with you all. So I'm just going to, I'm going to introduce them together since they're reading together. Um, Anne Bracken's memoir in verse, The Altar of Innocence, was released in 2015 by New Academia Publishing. Her poetry essays and interviews have appeared in anthologies and journals, including Little Protextant Review, The New Verse News, Scribble, Reckless Writing, The Modernization of Poetry by Emerging Poets of the 21st Century, and Women Write Resistance, Poets Resist Gender Violence. Anne serves as a contributing editor for Little Patuxent Review, lectures at University of Maryland College Park, and leads workshops for creativity conferences, book clubs, schools, and adult education programs. Um, Anne's book, The Altar of Innocence, explores the cycle of her mother's own mental illness and alcoholism and its legacy in her own life. With its searing honesty and gripping details, the book creates an unforgettable portrait not just of two women, but also of the ailing cultures that surround them. At the end, there is an image of a ceramic heart that has been glued back together Even Broken, It Was Beautiful, that makes a powerful figure both for the soul of the poet, forged through trauma, but also for the difficult beauty of the book. Barbara Morrison, who writes as B. Morrison, is the author of two poetry collections, Terrarium and Here at Least, and a memoir, Innocent, Confessions of a Welfare Mother. Her award-winning work has been published in anthologies and magazines. An editor, teacher, and publisher, she conducts writing workshops and speaks on women's and poverty-related issues, as well as publishing and marketing. From, um, a Terrarium is a great name for her newest book, because moving through it does feel like moving through a piece of landscape. The poems have sharp, tangible subjects, and nature's conciseness, nature's wisdom, nature's serenity and poise are at their hearts. Yet they also tell a unique and personal story. Their gift is to find inner truths by exploring external ones, or in the poet's words, to envision and piece by smallest piece create a world. Um, So please help me to welcome both of these wonderful poets.
1: Thank you, Charlene, and thanks to the library for having us here tonight, and thanks to all of you for coming out on such a cold and rainy evening. Um, Anne and I called this um, looking back to move forward, this session, because we realized that both of our poetry collections have an aspect of memoir to them, Um, and you know what? Memoirs are very popular these days, and and why do we like to read memoirs so much? You know what? I think it's because we like to get into other people's lives. We like to see the world through other people's eyes. We like to know what it's like to be that other person, um, and they're true stories, and that's what makes them so powerful. Um, another reason why we like memoir, I think, is because um, for all of us, whatever age we are, part of our um, part of our creative life is making a narrative. Out of our own experiences, trying to understand what's our story? What's the story that we're living? And so when we read a memoir or when we write a memoir, we are seeing how that story can be constructed out of real events, which is not an easy thing to do because, you know, real life is a little chaotic. It it doesn't lend itself to, oh, here's the beginning of the story, here's the middle, here's the climax, here's the end. it's more—it's more of a jumble. So, trying to sort that out into a coherent narrative is—is is one of our tasks as as adults. Anne um, and I talked a good bit about why we thought poetry was an appropriate form for writing memoir, and one thing we thought was that um, in a in a single poem, you're capturing one incident, one. One uh, understanding one moment in time and and that's really how our memories work. You know they work in flashes. We don't tend to remember you know whole long strings of things unless we really sit down and work at it. We remember flashes, oh yeah, that experience, I remember that, so poetry is very true to that experience of memory. Um, poetry also um, gives you almost um, without. Any uh, narrative, expository kind of surrounding, it gives you that moment of being in the experience. If we're successful, you know that when you read the poem, you are in that experience. And so, in that sense, um, we think that poetry is a good format for writing memoir. Um, it's a little piecemeal, but um, but as I said, that's how our memories work. So, um, one of the things I tell my my writing classes my memoir writing classes, is, is, um, is a little exercise that uh, this writing teacher um, taught me, which is that your, your memory is like a colander. You all know what a colander is, right? A, a sieve that you pour the spaghetti into and let the water drain out the holes. In your, in your memories colander, all those memories just go, come in and they go out through the holes, but some little things catch in that colander. And those are the experiences that are really meaningful. So those are the experiences that are worth exploring. So I'm going to read you a poem about, um, you know, there's much that I've forgotten about being a child, but, um, this is, this is a very strong memory for me from when I was, I don't know how old I was, uh, maybe eight or nine. It's called Dolls. I don't know about you, but I'm really scared of dolls. My, uh, I was in Toronto with my son one day and we went into this art stop, shop, this art and craft shop, and they had all these clocks made out of old doll faces. And I was so terrified I had to leave and wait outside for him. I just, I couldn't even imagine wanting to bring those into your house. <laughs> um, so this is called Dolls. There was this story, meant to be charming, about dolls coming to life. Dolls coming to life. What fun! Real tea parties, real babies gurgling in your arms. But I was horrified. What could I say to the collection my mother insisted on, those fancy and foreign dolls that never left their shelf, and the few I actually used, abused rather, cast off to desert islands or sent to Oliver Twist orphanages, poorly clothed, rarely fed, how they would complain of their ill-treatment, their horrors endured. It was an adventure, I might feebly offer. Oh, I tell you, I had nightmares for years. And I still do. <laughs> so that is, that is one memory that has stuck with me for a long, long time. Um, here's another one about... about some trees that were on our property. I called them the twins. Sometimes, if I thought no one was looking, I would climb past the patio with its silvery stone up onto the hill where the beech trees stand, where two had grown up together from a common root, pale and slender, the merest slit between, and I would wedge myself into the tree's embrace. And look out beyond where the hill falls away, out over the treetops, and dream of roots and warm arms and me for once safe from harm. Now that I've gone beyond and returned, I remember these first friends. Now, when friends like family join me in the dance, our clasped hands and balanced weight holding us firm while sending us soaring. so in that in that poem, what I did was take a, a past memory, but compare it to my life today in fact i I walked past uh, my old house this week last week um and I saw that those trees had been cut down, and I was so sad, not that I would have fit in them anymore, but um I was just I was very sad that they were gone.
2: okay. good. So um, my book, The Altar of Innocence, was uh, pretty much inspired when I found my mother's fashion designs in our family basement, and the image on the front is one of her designs. Um, These were buried in our family basement for 60 years, and when I finally took them to my mother in the nursing home is when she told me that she always wanted to be a fashion designer. So I you know, I suffered from depression, my mother suffered de- from depression, and we're both artists. And I began to wonder, you know, what could, could that not non-expression of such a gift have led to some form of depression? Could that be one of the contributing factors? And um, this poem kind of explores how my mother may have felt as a young, young wife and mother with a lot of children. It's called, Helen Lives the Queen for a Day Life. There's no pattern for the life she's living. She can't render sense out of the daily chores, the diapers and meals, the homework and toddlers. There's no pasture behind her house like the golden field in the Wyeth painting. Her dreams play in the shadows like rogue relatives who squander security passion. Sometimes she feels degrees away from sanity, like when she imagines her dusty art portfolios whimpering in the basement, buried, perhaps under the twigs of her youthful dreams. She plays at being happy as she peels another diaper off her infant son and cajoles vegetables into her daughter's stubborn mouths. (coughs) She feels her spirit wither, even as her husband cheers the news of her pregnancy and measures out an ounce of gin for her nightly martini. One of my numbers fell out. I had all my poems numbered. So um, I was very young when I discovered or had an inkling that alcohol was a problem in my home, and this is a poem based on a very strong memory that I have from when I was about maybe six years old. It's called Wine and Water. I am in the basement laundry room, piled high with crates of discarded skates, broken toys, and pieces of wood to fix the just-in-case... As I round the corner, I glance to my left and see Dad pouring water into a clear plastic funnel, jammed yet teetering in a gallon-sized jug of my mother's white wine. He catches a glimpse of me, then turns back to his mixing and commands, Don't ever tell your mother what you saw. I feel as if some invisible barrier is in place with me and dad on one side of knowing and my mom on the other, nodding in obedience, I agree, and then run outside to play, swinging back and forth between truth and loyalty, swinging higher, afraid to jump. And one of my uh, strongest memories of childhood was going to the pool in the summertime. Belong, we lived in uh, Catonsville near Hunting Hills and we belonged to the Hunting Hills Swim Club and my siblings and I would walk to the pool. And my mother never went with us. Uh, so uh, I wrote this poem kind of imagining how my mother may have felt sending us off to the pool by ourselves. It's called Prayers to Mary, Queen of Heaven. The children finish Grace, gobble their warm grilled cheese sandwiches before she can pour the milk. Their little tummies round under faded swimsuits. A spasm of guilt shivers through her body as she waves goodbye, shielded behind the screen. She watches them skip down the street, holding hands, placing penny bets, on who will do the first flip. Hail Mary, where's the grace I beg for just to get through each hour? She feels the neighbor's eyes bore into her, imagining their innuendos cresting into a chorus of bad mother, bad mother, until she slams the door on the third day this week that her children walk to the pool alone. Holy Mother, why do I drag my limp body into bed just after noon? She closes her eyes, imagining her children splashing in the water, diving into the pool. Dear Jesus, Son of God, help me to get up before they come home. Give me an answer when they beg. Please, Mom, swim with us, just once.
1: So you can see from Anne's powerful poems that um, one of the things that we've been trying to do is to reveal secrets, you know, the family secrets that were held very close. Um, and that's, um, that's one of the things that you, you have to do when you write memoir. You know, people say, oh, I can't possibly tell about that story because it'll make this person so unhappy. you know. Who caused the problems? Um, Annie Lamont, the writer, has a great comeback for that. She says, Well, if they didn't want you to write about them, they should have behaved better. <laughs> but, you know, these, we're talking about our families here, because both of us wrote about our, chil- our childhood. I was, you know, when I set out to write these poems, I was thinking about uh, the influence of place, not just the, the physical place you grew up in, which for me was Roland Park here in Baltimore, but your place in the family and in that family constellation. Which is so influential as to how your childhood goes. So, I'm going to read you this
2: one. Weren't you the oldest daughter? I was the oldest daughter. We were both oldest daughters. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I have the same name as my mother, (laughs) which made it a very fraught relationship. You know, know that mini-me thing? (laughs) That's what I felt like a lot of the time. Anyway, um, one of the things also we talk about in my memoir writing class is how can you remember dialogue from so long ago? But, you know, especially when it comes to the things your mother says, there are certain things that she said that are in there, word for word, and you will never forget them, and this is one of them. The poem's called Watching. You live in a dream world, my mother often said. Accusingly, like I was crazy or something, she, who who pretended we were happy and preferred the others, who clamored for attention, they pretended not to hear what sent her fleeing to my room at night as though I could protect her. I, the wakeful one who kept watch in the night and learned to live the truth, it made him fear me. And this one's called Photo Album. Think about a photo album, thick black paper pages. Uh, You know, I know this is like totally a foreign concept to young people today. You know, what are you talking about? Anyway, think about a photo album, thick black paper pages, people whose names you don't know. You make up stories, where they are, what they mean to each other. You look at shots of yourself as a child, head tilted, eyes squinting into the sun, the house behind you, brothers and sisters clustered around, just like any happy family. And when I thought about places, you know, I thought about uh, the, the twins, that story. Um, I thought about yeah, one of my favorite places which was, um, we called it, The Dusty Place. Everyone forgets the dusty place. This was a spot in our yard where I grew up. Everyone forgets the dusty place. Mom overwhelmed, focused on the house and a couple of garden patches out front. We kids with many places to play, haunted houses in the basement, catch in the street, war in the long side yard. We all avoided the steep hill and back, a jungle of honeysuckle and ivy, falling-down trees, May apple umbrellas, poison ivy, and pokeweed. The sun porch outcropped behind the house and underneath lay the dusty place, waste ground between foundation and a chain-link fence. When not next door or up a tree, I was there scuffing the dust into storms and drawing stable plans. Three walls, some stalls, nothing to it. I'll just leave the poem for a moment to tell you that there was always this story that somebody in our neighborhood had a horse in Roland Park that they kept in their garage. So we were like, yeah, well, why can't we do that? Why can't we have a horse? Um, I always thought it was not true, but at one of our earlier readings, somebody came up to me and said, oh, yeah, I knew him. He did. He did have a horse, and he rode it to Alonzo's every day. (laughs) So there I was in the dusty place, um, drawing stable plans for my horse that I was going to have. Three walls, some stalls, nothing to it. The dusty place, refuge from the tangled mess of weeds, enough clear space to see who's coming and run Reason, I now love deserts and desolate beaches. Worthless, my mother said, nothing will ever grow there. Worthless, as a girl child, only good for making cakes and babies. Worthless, as a scrawny cuckoo in the nest. Everyone forgets, everyone but me, squatting in the dust, drawing my dreams.
3: Thank you.
2: So Barbara said that uh, oftentimes memoir deals with secrets, family secrets, and uh, it was supposed to be a secret from my parents' friends, from the uh, mothers of my friends, that my mother had depression. Uh, Back in the 60s, you didn't talk about it. It was very shameful. Uh, We were never supposed to say anything about my mother's illness. Well, when we were little, we didn't even know what it was, just that mom was ill, but I was pretty young when I discovered that uh, lots of people knew this secret that I was supposed to be keeping. This is a, a partner poem to the poem I just read. This one is from my viewpoint at the pool. It's called The Swimming Pool Ladies. Mom's friend Janice, with the skinny legs, the thinning hair, and the raspy voice, is always at the pool with the other swimming pool ladies. Mom's friends sit together, tanned and hatted, laughing at grown-up jokes, lined up, papered all perfect, on their wooden loungers. I pass by them on my way to the deep end and stare at the empty chair where my mother should be. The swimming pool ladies shake their heads and gossip. I hear Helen's in the hospital again, those poor children. Stepping to the edge of the deep end, I notice Janice's eyes lock eyes with me as I dive into the water. Escaping into the kick, stroke, breathe of the crawl, moving away from her stare, I long for my mother's smile to catch me at the other end. And that's certainly a memory that's stuck in my colander, <laughs> so to speak. So... Um, This is a poem that was inspired by mythology. I love mythology, Greek mythology. And uh, this is a poem about uh, a woman who's never discussed. It's called Mrs. S. No one ever tells the story of Mrs. Sisyphus, perhaps because she endures at the bottom of the hill with all the little boulders tumbling from above. In between the spinning of cloth and the baking of bread, she rolls the children out the door to play and rolls the food home from the market. Day after day, she jostles the water jugs from well to house and back. She nudges and cajoles the bigger boulders of animals from pasture to barn and finally to slaughter, preparing feasts for all the baby-sissified who gather around the table whining, when is daddy coming home? My mythology poem. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, being the oldest daughter, I was often given a lot of responsibility. I had three younger siblings, and my dad would depend on me to take care of them or to step up to chores in the house. And we were a very, if you can't guess already, we were a very Catholic family. Um, So we always prayed for my mother to get well. And uh, I would, you know, even now there's that helping piece of me. And so when I think about my mom, uh, I often think about time travel. I want to go back to my mother who wrote those desperate notes and left them on the kitchen table back to the woman who tried to quench her sacred thirst with ordinary gallow wine. I want to push all of her pill bottles off the counter and cheer as they crash on the floor. Then I will show her the dresses she designed, those watercolors from her lost self. Maybe I could even lead her up to the roof where we would sit together And touch the green of trees and mom could see that anything is possible
1: one of the interesting things about about memoir is that even when you're writing about the past about your childhood or the more recent past you're writing about it from the present. So there's a tension that is set up between who you were at the time of the incidents and who you are now. And especially now that we're writing about uh, childhood, My only the first section of my book is about childhood, but even in Anne's you can see the tension of what she knows now as an adult versus what she knew then, the innocence of the child who didn't know any better. Um, so... I will read you this one. Uh, Maybe not. Um, Yeah, this one. Um, About another place that was really important to me as a child. Place of innocence for me. Um, we had we had a, a walk-in closet on the second floor that my mother used as a linen closet where she kept sheets and blankets and things. So this is called the linen closet. Hiding on a rainy Saturday, me in the linen closet, lying full length behind stacks of sheets, still smelling of the iron's hard water and burnt metal. My mother loved the feel of ironed sheets. Civilized, she said, and even bought a press that hulked in the kitchen corner. Late at night, she'd sit there feeding damp sheets into its maw. I hid a lot and never wanted seeking. Under beds, inside curtains, behind the trunks in the attic with their leather straps, where the slope of the eaves made a cave just my size. Or the linen closet with the door closed, making it a place apart, an escape pod shot from this unhappy home, or how its upper room, except I hid alone, dreaming my dreams. When they sold the house and my mother emptied the linen closet, she found toys still in their packages, things she'd bought and hidden for birthdays and Christmases and then forgotten. Six kids are a lot, I guess. She tried, after all, in her own way, I guess. So Anne mentioned having to care for her younger siblings, and as the oldest girl of six, yes, indeed. <laughs> I think uh, the thing that my family heard most from me was, leave me alone, <laughs> um, as they tried to follow me everywhere. Um, and and one of the things about, about writing about the past is that as you try to understand the people in them, as Anne wrote the story from her mother's viewpoint, um, and as I just was reading about um, trying to understand what my mother did right, <laughs> what she tried to do right, um, it helps us really understand that person better and maybe forgive them a little bit. Um, let's see. Um, the middle part. Oh, I know. I wanted to read you this one. Um, This one's called Mimi. I was very lucky because next door to me was this very old woman. Um, She ended up living to be 103, but I think at that time she was probably only in her late, in her 80s. Yeah, she would have been in her 80s, which now seems very young, but then seemed very old. And she was um, starting to get just a tiny bit of dementia Um, her sister had lived with her, and her sister had actually gone to college and gotten a literature degree, which, you know, was a little unusual in the early part of the 19th century. So there were lots of lovely um, books and novels for me to read there, and she would let me come and just read and hang out in her house, which is pretty remarkable. So, um, here's where I hide, next door. Mimi's almost 100 and starting to slip. She likes to know that I'm near. The house muffled, just her, a maid and the heavy chairs, the velvet drapes unchanged since she came as a bride. The house like a board game, study, conservatory, kitchen. I slink into corners, read her sister's books. The spinster who went to college, dead these ten years. I hear Mimi singing, a slight breathy sound. I bring a dusty book, its flimsy pages edged with gold and sit beside her chair. I sent for cookies, Mimi says, grasping the heavy curtain, not looking at me. The red bird said you were here. He only talks to me, don't tell, she says. I crawl behind the couch, listen for heavy footsteps in the hall, see the wine velvet curtains begin to move. If she goes, who is left? One of the things that's really hard about being young is that you feel like you have no control over what's what's happening around you. Um, and I felt that I was very lucky to have to have Mimi in my life. Um, so um, I did I have my own mythology poem. I don't think I've read this with you no, before. No. this is called Myth. You all know that Robert Frost poem where he has one of his characters say, you know, home is where they have to let you in. I don't remember the exact Mm -hmm. words. Um, So this is called Myth. You can go back all you want, but this time they don't take you in. The door stays shut. The window spills lamplight across skeleton shrubs and empty ground. The tang of wood smoke sends out a welcome, but not for you. For you, only the stripped cold air and far-off
0: stars."
2: Thank you. So I'm kind of in the second half of my story where I deal with my own experience through depression. Um, And when I had my last depression, which started over 20 years ago, uh, I didn't know that I was depressed. It started out with this horrific headache And I went to the doctor complaining of a headache. And he said to me, and I didn't know what this meant either, he said, well, there's something stuck in your affect. And when (laughs) it lifts, you'll be fine. Okay. So this is my attempt to describe what it's like to have depression. It's that long slide from hopeful to bereft as the gaudy landscape of your life falters in the hallways. Doctors offer their gifts. Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, Buspar, Six weeks of one and six weeks of another until the gods of serotonin and dopamine push you back into the light. When my spirit soars with easy smiles and ready laughs, the doctors shake their heads and whisper, Manic! Bipolar, too. I lose my vocabulary. I gain 50 pounds. I undress alone in the dark. New drugs tamp me down to some arbitrary normal, and life spreads itself before me, daily postcards of people and plans. But I feel nothing except the smooth surface of the picture unable to enter its world. That's kind of what mood regulators did to me. Uh, they, I have a very, I like to tell people my normal personality, if this is the average happiness level, mine is here. So my normal personality is more upbeat and more energetic and the doctors just pick some arbitrary level and uh, that's what the drugs did to me and it was really very difficult and um, nobody you know nobody imagines that electroconvulsive therapy would have any kind of humor attached to it but um, I'm going to defy that stereotype for you you said you were up here yeah well I am and it this this will defy the stereotype this is uh, about an incident with a nurse in the hospital where I had electroconvulsive therapy. It's called Teaching the Nurse How to Give the Memory Test. They give you a memory test before and after ECT. For my third electroconvulsive therapy treatment at the McDonald Surgery Center, a nurse named Madeline is taking care of me. Oh, poor thing. You're Dr. Sherman's patient. Last week, his pants fell down in the operating room and all the nurses made him a set of suspenders. Now, get undressed, dear. I put on the gown, the socks with the chevron grip strips and the blue cap. Madeline starts the IV. I'm all set. Then she apologizes. I'm sorry, I have to give you this silly memory test. Oh, for Petey's sake, we'll just skip this part. You know the days of the week, the months of the year, the seasons. And of course, you know what year it is. But what do they mean, count backwards by seven? So I explain. You pick a high number, and then you tell me to count backwards by seven. Madeline smiles. Okay, start at 25. (laughs) Then she places a piece of paper on the ground And shakes her head No, I tell her You tell me to put the paper on the ground It's part of seeing if I can follow directions Oh, for heaven's sake I know you're a smart lady You know how to write a sentence, don't you? And I'm not even going to ask you to draw a picture of a house I'm pretty nervous now and Dr. Sherman arrives, 30 minutes late. I've got it all under control, he assures me with a snap of his suspenders. <laughs> and my memory's fine. <laughs> yeah.
1: So the middle section of my book is about um, the last few months of my mother's life, and it, it was um, learning to come to terms with being in a different place. You know, my place as a daughter was changing, I guess is the way I want to put it. Any, all of you who have been through that um, know how it is when you, the, the child become the acting parent to your, to your parent, and, um, it can be very disconcerting, um, and one of the ways that poetry worked really well for me here, what, in order to write about this, was that, um, poetry, you know, Emily Dickinson says, you know, tell it slant. Poetry comes at these things a little obliquely sometimes, and sometimes you can use imagery and, and sort of let the image carry the, the emotional weight for you, so, um, this is one uh, that uses a, a strong image for what I didn't want to talk about. Um, it's called Old Woman. The stripped and broken tree, finally toppled by the last great wind. For too long, it has clung to a semblance of life, a sculpture for snow to adorn, caught up in the arms of nearby trees. Now, creaking, it leans dangerously close to the beckoning ground. I wait in the night for the crackle and crash, the final drop into the earth's soft arms. And this one, again, taking an image uh, to try and come at something that I didn't want to be, I didn't know what I felt about it until I could write this poem. It's called Hospice. I watch, I'm not a big sports fan in general, but I love watching tennis matches, you know, because it's one person against one person, and you can see the, the power shift from one person to the other, you know, where one person starts to give up, and then they get all enthused again and believe they can do it, and the other person gets discouraged, and, and you see that starting to happen. So this is called Hospice. Even though the game is far from over, you can see when the player accepts defeat, There's a stiffness in his walk, a letdown in the shoulders, and a certain easing around his eyes. Pride keeps him there till the end, even though he knows, as we know, the decision's already been reached. And this one is called March. May now. I keep. We were Charlene and I were joking ahead of time before because I kept writing June, and yet it doesn't even feel like May. It feels like it's still March, doesn't it? Um, this is called March. Only the last mud-rimmed shells of snow remain. This is the most mysterious moment when the woods tilt towards spring, and the tree's gray tedium is first infused with red, as old faces blush. When given oxygen. With the influx of color. Just a hint still in March. The beech saplings step forward. With their flickering ghost leaves. They are last year's leaves. Pale and papery. As an old woman's hands. Ivy and honeysuckle crowd in. And overwhelm the wild rugosis. They climb the tall trunk's greedy hands. Grasping at bark. One white tree stands stripped and forlorn among the reddening oaks and ash. Its time is almost over. What really can we expect from each other? Faint memories that linger beyond their time? Willing hands to take the photographs of people we never knew, the clothes we cannot wear? The year turns. The ghost leaves will not be held much longer. I'm sure you're just gonna read one more, so I'm sure. going no, to so end with the um, title poem, Terrarium. You all know what a terrarium is. It's like um, a glass bowl, like a fish bowl. You put a little garden inside and cover it. And it... Anyway, um, this is another one of those colander memories. My grandmother, my mother's mother, whom I'm also named for, first name is my mother's name, middle name is my grandmother's name, they, weren't going to give me any kind of break at all, right? Um, She lived with us for the last few years of her life. And um, being her namesake, I was on call um, a lot of the time. And and we did do a lot of fun things together. We watched uh, Sing Along with Mitch together, you know, Follow the Bouncing Ball. Um, She loved that, even though neither of us could sing worth a darn. But um, uh, this is a really strong memory of a a time that I had with her. And, you know, exploring these memories... um, some of them were painful that I was exploring, but um, some remind me that um, I, I, when I write about them, I understand better what they mean. You know, that that um, sometimes I didn't understand at the time why it was so important. You know, it's a, sort of the innocence of a child, but then as you get older, um, you realize this was really a formative thing for me. Um, one of the things that I, I understood after I wrote the poem was that um, I have always, every place I've lived, I've put in a garden that wasn't there before. And even when I lived in uh, tenements in in Worcester when I was on welfare, I always put in a garden, and and it was because of this experience. So this is called Terrarium. Making a terrarium, like the ones Granny used to make, miniature enchantments for a child. It takes a fishbowl, moss, a few little plants like fern and honeysuckle, a stone or two, water it thoroughly, and cover to keep damp. She said it was a bit of forest in this room, where she moved from bed to chair and back again. I look around my mother's apartment, gauging how hard it will be to empty. Most of the hard work's been done in the move from big house to little to townhouse to here. Now it will be a hospice room. Some things will fit. Some things that have gone with her from place to place that tell you this is her space. The jade birds, the fan-folded obi, the painting of a rain-swept street in Paris. This is the skill that's handed down from mother to child to invent ourselves in the space around us, to envision and piece by smallest piece, create a world.
2: So I'm going to end with a poem about my father. Um, when I was growing up, I was very afraid of my father. He was a pretty stern, strict person, and uh, he was he was harsh. You know, he, he was a kind of a no-nonsense person, but one of the things that the memoir, writing the memoir, did for me was to help me to understand my parents a lot better. And I be, as I began to think about his life and think about the fact that he would go to work every day and not know what might happen to his wife and leave four children in the house, uh, I realized what a lot of courage he had and began to understand maybe why he was more, a little more short-tempered, he had a lot of stress on him. So this is a poem for my dad. It's called, When I Think of My Father. When I think of my father, It's as if my legs are pumping up and down, riding faster, back to all the mornings when Dad cooked breakfast for us in the yellow kitchen. I hear eggs sizzling in the cast iron skillet. I smell S.K. Bacon and Taylor's ham. And I hear Dad ask, Can I make you anything? When I think of my father, the rub of regret wraps its hands around me As if to strangle my answer and offer a new scene where I slide the yogurt container back into the refrigerator and instead I say yes to the eggs fried in bacon grease dotted with the bite of black pepper. Thank you.
1: Thanks, everybody. Um, Thank we'd you. like to open this up to questions, but also, you know, to sharing. If you want to, is, is there a poem or a memoir that you've read that you'd like to share with us or that you've written or any questions? And we have a, a uh, microphone here. You're it. Okay.
2: How long, how long did it take you both to put those memoirs together? Um, I would say that I worked on mine for five or six years,
1: and I would—I didn't work on mine quite that long. I—I'd I, um, I, say two years for me writing these poems. But now the memoir of that—that's a prose memoir that I wrote. That took me four years to write and. Yeah, and then another four years to get published.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm interested in um, how do you term determine the length of your poem uh, by your memory and coming up with a full poem that satisfies you or gratifies you that you like to share? How do you determine the length or how much you should say or not? Is that... Is there a cut-off, or what What brings you to the end before, you know, maybe alternatively going on longer?
1: That's a very good question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I often um, cut my poems when I'm revising them, and sometimes I make them longer, so it's just until it seems to capture the emotion, the experience and the emotion for me, but I never know how long it's going to be when I start out. About you, Anne?
2: No, I don't know how long the poems are going to be. I I have a memory and I have something that I want to communicate and then I just start writing and uh, it, most of my poems go through numerous revisions. All right, I understand that.
3: Is there a... I guess it's the concept you want to bring forward mm-hmm. and share with your audience. So... I guess then it, it asks me the question for you: What? Mm, what is the pattern of your poetry in that regard? Do you find that you have some that are of the same length, and or is it just vary?
2: I'd say most of my poems, if you look at the book, there most of them take up about a page. One page. Yeah, and I have a few that are are longer. longer. Than that. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say the same. Mine are about that that length too. Okay. And I, but I, I really try to cut them back to get just the bare minimum to get to, to capture the experience.
3: Yes, okay. Yeah. thank you. But a good question. Yeah,
4: the subject matter. I can feel the emotion and a lot of the poetry that you've written. How did you? How were you able to? overcome and actually write them. I mean, it's they are just so intense. Uh, but some of them are just so intense, and I feel that emotion. And I still have not been able to write some of these poems. Some friends of mine have written about their fathers, mm-hmm. and these are about mothers. But um, how do you get past that to be able to write it?
2: Uh, I think with most of with the poems about my mother, I had done a lot of processing in therapy, and because they most of them happened so long ago, they, there was much more distance, and so it was a little bit easier to just make them not just, but to make them into a story, and to communicate something that I wanted to communicate. The harder poems for me to write were the poems in the second half, which dealt with my own depression and uh, my decision to leave my marriage. So they were the much more difficult poems to write.
1: I, I really struggled with it, I have to tell you, because, um, you know, I, I I write a lot and I write regularly, but it is the thing that makes it hard for me to sit down and start writing. I, I feel like, oh, do I really want to go to that painful, vulnerable place again? But if you don't, then the writing doesn't have any power. So, um, yeah, I, I really had to struggle with it. Um, to talk about these things.
4: The second part of that question is um, both of your uh, parents had passed away Mm -hmm. already when you wrote them. Um, Would it have not been possible had they still been here?
1: So the poems about, in the second part, about the last months of my mother's life, I actually wrote those during that time. the, the ones about my childhood I wrote, you're right, after she had passed away, and it, it was easier. Um, but now I regret it because, as, as Anne mentioned as well, um, by writing these I came to understand her point of view so much better, and now I wish I could talk to her from that new understanding. and I can't, you know, it's too late, so I really regret that I, I didn't um, summon my courage and, and do it before.
2: Yeah, I feel the same way. I wish that I could share share my different understanding with my parents especially my father uh my father and I came to we came to a good understanding maybe the last 10 years of his life and we were pretty close but we were like this for quite a while
1: I think there's somebody behind you who has there's, the mic there's somebody behind home. you yes go ahead
5: um I, I know i know as a poet that um that a good bit of what happens in my life ends up in my poetry for better or for worse but I, I, as a memoirist, I discovered that um, uh, sharing my memoir with people that are in it has had two very different interactions. In one case, one of the women I wrote about couldn't wait to get a copy because she was just so flattered that I remembered her in a particular way. Another woman had stopped speaking with me. So, <laughs> so I was wondering if you had an experience like that um, in sharing your, your, your books of poetry with, with friends that, um, that would recognize themselves.
1: So my, um, nobody in my family reads poetry but me, so <laughs> that wasn't an issue. When I wrote the other memoir, um, I didn't tell my siblings that I was writing it. My parents had both passed away by the time it came out. And the day before it was published, I emailed my five siblings and I said, oh, by the way, I've written this memoir. You're in it, but only a little bit, and it's there's nothing to identify you, so you don't have to worry. Because um, they're all, because it was about my time on welfare, and they're all, very conservative and loathe the idea of welfare and think that all people on welfare should not be. So you know, I knew that they would disagree with it politically um, and be embarrassed by it if it were if it were connected to them. So I said, you know, you won't you won't be recognized, so don't worry about it. Dead silence. Then one brother wrote back to me and he said, politics are one thing, family is another, congratulations. And then my youngest brother wrote to me and he's an email and he said that's fine, but did you include, and he listed like six incidents of which he was the star, you know, <laughs> from our childhood. And, but the other four, I never heard word one, so I, I don't know. No. So yeah, it's, it's, um, you are taking a kind of a risk when you write a memoir. You never know how people are going to respond to it.
2: And I told my siblings about the book, and none of them have said anything about it to me. Uh, my cousins, I have a lot of cousins in the Baltimore area. Many of them have come to the readings. They have the book. They, uh, they've said to me that they think my parents would be very proud of the book and proud of my work. So I take that as a, an, an endorsement that um, what I was aiming for was healing in the book, that writing the book was really an act of healing for myself and to uh, put that out into the world that that's a possibility for anyone who goes through difficult circumstances.
1: Oh, and I just want to add that my mother's cousin, with whom she was very close, read the memoir and read my poetry, and she said, you know, your mother would be very happy that her story was told. She didn't want it told while she was alive, the story of her being abused by my father, um, because she didn't want people to pity her, but she did want it to be known after she was dead. So, you know, these secrets after someone's gone... You know, they lose some of their potency. And you had a question here in the front row. Yes,
4: yes I, were, um, I was in and out, but I got back and I started listening to you, y'all. And I think they were very. Um, the topics were very warm and um, extraordinary. And um, I think um, you should be proud of yourselves because you. they sound very oh, sweet. of yourselves and what you did and to take and get success with it. And it was the feeling of what it was. It's really your inner self and your outer self. And really, it was, was There were nice. Thank you very
3: Thank
1: much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You know, I think it was Lucille Clifton that said, um, poetry... That's Lucille Clif- Clifton that poetry is really something for women because, you know, we don't we're busy taking care of the kids and the house and the family, but you know you can take a few minutes and all you need is a piece of paper and a pencil. You don't need paints, you don't need canvases. You know, you just this is something you can do. So, um, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. That was very perceptive. Yes, I,
1: I use a lot of internal rhyme, and I think you do too. So good. Anybody else?
5: Just on the publishing side of thinking about memoir, I've written something that combines. Really, narrative, which is the memoir, and then poetry, which is more of an emotional response to events. And I'm at the stage of starting to look for agents, and you go through, and people don't want to deal with poetry. <laughs> um, and yet, uh, some of them even publish it, but they won't admit that they're the the agent who actually represents anybody with poetry. Um, I don't know whether you've had any of this type of experience, but I'm I'm kind of at the beginning. I've got a complete manuscript. I'm ready to find somebody, and I'm just curious uh, what you've encountered, and uh, whether anybody else in the audience might have encountered some things of how you, how you might best approach some of those subjects.
1: Well, you've already got you've already got another strike against you because you've got a hybrid, Mm -hmm. you know, of a memoir and poetry, which I personally think is a fabulous form to use. It's really excellent. Um, I self publish my poetry, but um, the path to having someone else publish it is to have individual poems published Mm -hmm. in magazines, um, and then another path is to submit it to contests. There are many contests, but usually it's a contest for a collection of poetry or a memoir. You could still submit it to a memoir contest, but not to a poetry collection. I don't think if it's a mixture. Um, I will just mention that the publisher of my memoir is Apprentice House, which, if you haven't heard of it, is a student-run publishing house that's part of Loyola University. And the students do the work of the publishing house um, as their coursework. But they are always looking for local authors, so that might be a place that you might try. Did you have something? I would just
2: second what Barbara said, and I only know one poet that has an agent. So all, all I have many, many friends who are poets, and they don't have agents. So that's it's it seems a little unusual or fortuitous, I guess, if you would find an agent.
1: Yeah, I would think you would submit directly to publishers. Mm-hmm. Not, I mean, now the big, the big five will not accept manuscripts without an agent. But you wouldn't be submitting poetry to them anyway. You'd be submitting it to a small, to a poetry, an independent poetry mm-hmm. press like Copper Canyon or some place like that. And and those you can go directly to. You right. don't need to go through an agent. Does that help? Anybody have anything to add to that? Any of you? Published? Publish, have your work published?
3: Um, I, I would say there are a lot of local presses, smaller presses, and they always, you know, like they're always looking for uh, new work, or, uh, and there are many involved in the museum areas. Of, um, so there are local presses that you can send your work to well.
1: That's very true, yes. Lots of local presses, there's... Um, Iris Press, there's City Lit Press. Yeah, there are a lot of them around town. So that you always have a little in with a local press, I think. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, Brickhals, Brickhals books with Gloria mm-hmm. Harris. Mm-hmm.
1: And another thing to do would be to go to open mic poetry readings mm-hmm. and read your poetry, and th- that way people get to know you. Um, I chose to self-publish my poetry books um, because I wanted that experience, and I actually like self-publishing a lot, so... Um, so I self-published my second book of poetry, too, because I liked having the control over it. Um, but, I, you know, both 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 paths work to get the book out there.
3: Other questions? Um, this was your memoir from your childhood and into your adulthood. Mm-hmm. Are you going to write another set of
2: poems about that healing on that's a good question other people have asked me that as well and right now I'm not I'm not feeling drawn to that my daughter said oh, mom I think you should write more poems and I said well what am I gonna say at the end everything's great <laughs> you know um, I said I don't know that people would necessarily believe me if I said that
3: I don't think they would, <laughs>
2: Okay, I'll I'll take that as a as a challenge for myself. Thank you.
1: Now the third section of my book is about um, there are poems about a certain place that I found. You know, sometimes you just walk into a place and you're like, oh, this is where I belong. This is my spot on earth, and I was lucky enough to find it and live there for a while. So there are poems about that. So they are happy poems mm-hmm. about being there. Um, lately, I've been writing a lot of haiku. Pardon me. Oh, the woman next door, oh, yeah. Mimi? Okay. Yeah.
3: Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to take care of her when I when I moved back here after I was older, so um, I was able to take care of her some in her last years, and that really felt good to me because she had been so good to me as a child.
2: I'm actually... Um, my second book has gotten accepted, and it's a coll- I've been a teacher for my whole career, so it's a collection of poems about the students that I've had in the classroom, And uh, it's kind of a talk back to the movement towards standardization and away from creativity. And then I think my next book will be inspired by the work that I've been doing for the past year, uh, volunteering in a writing group in a men's prison. And the the experience is really compelling and the, the men are remarkable. So I think that's something I would like to share with people is to talk about you know, my stereotypes being broken down and the people, the marvelous, really marvelous people that I'm meeting that are in prison, and I realize that a big part of my work is coming from the desire to give voice to people without a voice. My mother didn't have a voice. When I went through the psychiatric system, I didn't really have a voice. My students often don't have a voice, and certainly when you're a prisoner, you don't have a voice. So I kind of see that as my role as a poet. It's really remarkable.
1: And you'll see out on the table we have our books for sale. I also have my first book of poems, which um, I wrote the year in the couple of years after I turned fifty. The year I turned fifty, my last child left home, and I sold the house, and my dog died. Which kind of sounds like a country song, but. The upshot was that I had nothing. You know, the things that filled my day were all gone, and I suddenly had all this space. And it was time for me to imagine a new and create a new life for myself. I felt like I had felt when I finished school and stepped out into the world and said, "Oh golly, what'll I do? <laughs> who will I be?" You know. So who will I be for the rest of my life? So there are poems of exploration, um, and and uh, challenge. So that's from a different phase of life. Yes.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of the library and all of us, it's a really special evening and wonderful um, reading and discussion. Um, and just to remind you, as Barbara just said, the books are on sale right outside here, so please stop and buy one. Um, Also, we've got our email list out there to sign up on. And if you could take a minute and fill out an evaluation of tonight's program, um, there's a form out there for that as well. Um, Yeah, and thank you very much for coming.